was on the, the grand picture. And one of the last conversations we had was about the gospel. And the gospel messages we looked at it, even though we were looking at passages that in just a couple of verses articulated it, each of those gospel messages really focused in on the person of Jesus Christ. It focused on the fact that God took on human flesh, came to earth, walked amongst us, and ultimately walked to the cross, willingly taking the punishment that we had earned for our sins upon himself so that we could have a relationship with God. And then each of those gospels went on to articulate the fact that the grave could not hold him, that sin could not, and sin and death could not overcome him. And ultimately he rose from the grave some three days later. And, and, and so we have a Lord that has not only taken our punishment upon himself, but is victorious over sin and death. That's the gospel message. And we were looking at it in simple passages in two or three verses, articulating all those kind of things. But there are passages in scripture, in fact, entire books of the Bible that articulate that in a much greater detail. And, and there are four, in fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are so focused on the good news that they bear the name Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, a lot of times it's easy to think of the Bible as something that simply fell from heaven, right? Intact in this nice faux leather binding with little red underlinings wherever Jesus is talking. But the reality is that although the Holy Spirit inspired each of these books of the Bible being written, they were still written by men who were in a particular historical context, writing to a very specific audience when they wrote. And so when we read these things, we can't simply just ask the question, well, what does this mean to me in 2014 without considering, the, well, who was writing, where were they writing, what was the historical context into which they were writing, and who was the audience that they were writing to? The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all sound very similar because Mark wrote his Gospel. It's the shortest of the four. He wrote his first. And then Matthew and Luke kind of took that and they added on to it details that they felt were pertinent to their particular audience that they were writing to. John, the fourth Gospel, sounds far different from all three of them because John was different. First off, he wasn't trying to build off of Mark's gospel. He was writing something completely his own. Secondly, John was an eyewitness. He was one of Jesus's very first disciples. And so he was writing from an eyewitness perspective what he had seen, what he had experienced. The the place where John was writing is also important because he wasn't writing in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the Holy Land surrounded by fellow Jews. He was actually living in Ephesus at the time, which is important. Ephesus is in Asia. And it's a port city, meaning it's, it's, it's got people coming in from all over the world. It's a melting pot environment. So he's not only got Jews there, but he's got Romans, he's got Greeks, he's got Asians, who are all living in this little or large metropolitan area. And he's writing in that context. And the audience he's writing to is also melting pot. It's not just Jews. He's writing to a lot of Gentiles. Gentiles is just a big word for non-Jews. And one of the other things I want to point out before we dive in this morning is that in Ephesus, we know from Acts chapter 19, when Paul visited Ephesus, he ran into a group of guys who claimed themselves to be disciples of John the Baptist, meaning they had been baptized into John's baptism of repentance, but they didn't really know the good news of Jesus Christ. They were not a follower of Jesus Christ himself. So we have followers of John the Baptist living in Ephesus where John is writing his gospel. That's going to factor into the the kind of 
details of Jesus' life that he includes. It's also going to factor into the terminology, the language he uses. Because think about this. When you write an email, you're going to speak your audience's language. You're going to write an email using different language and different terminology if you're writing it to your boss as, say, perhaps a coworker or even a friend. They're going to sound very different. And my emails to my wife sound far different than even to my friends. I use different terminology. I say, I love you and all this, like, schmooze, whatever. You know, you know what I mean. You speak your audience's language, and whenever an author is writing, they would speak in a way that their audience would understand. That's just background context for us to understand as we now dive into the Gospel of John. So go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1. Now, last week, we looked at the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And in that, we learned about who the person of Jesus is, the person of Jesus Christ. We learned that he is the divine logos, the 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 word through which God spoke creation into existence and then ultimately brought order from the chaos. But he's not just the word. He's not just this kind of power that holds things together. He's also the light of the world, the light of life shining into the sin-darkened world that we find ourselves living in and bringing hope and healing to a world that desperately needs it. And then in John chapter 19, we're introduced... I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse 19, we're introduced to this guy named John, John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin, and John the Baptist had felt called by God to go and preach a gospel of repentance, basically calling people to repent from the lifestyle they were living, calling people to turn back. Repent is just a, a military turn for turning and walking the other direction. And his gospel was a gospel of repentance. Turn from the ways you've been living. Turn from your self-centered lifestyle and prepare your hearts because the Messiah is coming. Well, John's message began to build a lot of notoriety. People were going, who is this guy? You know, is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Is he the one, God's anointed redeemer, that's going to make all things right and reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation? Maybe it's him. But there were other people who were saying, no, he's not the Messiah. He's the precursor to the Messiah. Because, and you don't need to turn here, but the very last two verses of the Old Testament, back in Malachi chapter 4, the last words we hear as the Old Testament prophets are wrapped up, and right before 400 years of silence, they were told this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah was the one prophet in the Old Testament that never died. He was caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire and taken into heaven. And we read that, I, that, that God will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day that the Lord comes, before God comes to restore and bring judgment upon the earth, before the Messiah comes, Elijah would come. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and I'll strike the land with total destruction. In other words, Elijah would come and speak a gospel of repentance and turn Israel back towards one another. And so people are going, could he be Elijah, returned in the flesh, come back to prepare the way of the Messiah? Maybe it's him. And yet there was still another group of people who were saying, no, he's another prophet because we have been waiting for a prophet like Moses promised us. And you don't have to turn here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses, as he was standing on the cusp of the promised land, said, hey, we're about to go in and take it. I'm not going with you, but God will raise up another prophet for you. And in verse 18, he says, 
God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from amongst their fellow Israelites. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. And so the people began to think, well, maybe this prophet that God raises up will be kind of a messianic figure. This person will help guide the people of Israel back into preeminence. And still others were like, well, no, I don't think he's going to be the Messiah, but he'll be a precursor to the Messiah, kind of like Elijah was supposed to be, somebody who would prepare the way of the Lord. Three pictures. Could he be the Messiah himself? Could he be Elijah returned in the flesh to prepare the way? Could he be this prophet the one that God is saying, you're going to lead my people. And so there were a group of people in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, actually, some leaders of the, the religious establishment, Pharisees and, and Sadducees, who said, you know, we want to find out who this guy claims himself to be. Who is John? Let's go find out. And so we read in verse 19 of John chapter 1. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And John did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. All right, don't get excited. I'm not him. Then they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Have you come back from, you know, from heaven to lead the people? And he said, I'm not. Well, then are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And finally, they said, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back with us to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, I find it interesting that John was really intentional about not allowing any of these titles these, these kind of stamps, because each of those titles, Messiah, Elijah, the prophet, carried with them tremendous political and theological baggage. Any one of them, if he had said, yeah, I come in the spirit of Elijah, or yes, I am one of the prophets, I am the prophet who is preparing the way for the Lord, they would have had great expectations of what that would mean. And he's constantly saying, no, I'm not one of them. Even though we read in other Gospels, Jesus himself says in Luke that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And he basically fulfilled the role that Elijah was supposed to fulfill. But he wasn't Elijah in the flesh. And what we see is that John is not willing to allow the focus to be on himself. He's constantly saying, don't look at me. I'm not the one. Don't focus on me. Instead, focus on the one who is to come. He's far greater than me. He's the one you need to focus on. So I'm simply someone who's making straight the path of the Lord. I am one to just help prepare hearts for his coming because he's the real one you need to focus on. Verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Well, when, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What gives you the right to baptize? You see, baptism was something they were already familiar with. But baptism was typically used for non-Jews, we'd call them Gentiles, who wanted to enter into the Jewish lifestyle, wanted to basically be um, brought into the Jewish faith. So they would go through a ceremonial dipping underwater as a, a, an act of cleansing and they were initiated as a Jew. But John wasn't just calling Gentiles to be baptized. He was, in fact, calling many Jews to be baptized into this baptism of repentance. What gives you the right, John, to baptize people if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet? On what authority do you do this? And John replied in verse 26, I baptize with water. 
But amongst you stands one you don't know. He is the one who will come after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, that role of untying the sandals was something that was the most menial of tasks. A disciple of someone would never untie their rabbi's sandals. That was a task saved for a slave. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. So don't focus all this attention on me. Prepare for him. He's the one. He's the one you need to focus on. Verse 28. All this happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So if you, if you know the, the map of Israel, you have the Sea of Galilee up here and you have the Dead Sea down here. And in between those two seas is a river, the Jordan River, that connects those two. And John was baptizing along the Jordan River south of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes, the, uh, takes away the sins of the world. Basically, he points Jesus out and says, that's him. He's the one I've been talking about. He's the one I've been saying I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't even know who he was. I couldn't have told you if you asked me. But the reason that I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, how would John's baptizing people reveal Jesus to Israel? He explains that. Verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit of the Lord come down from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus when he got baptized. And I myself didn't even know it was him. But the one who sent me, whether it was an angel of God or God himself, the one who sent me to baptize told me that the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize my people with the Holy Spirit. So I have seen and I, John the Baptist, testify that this is God's chosen one. Let me explain what he just said. John felt called into ministry to go out and begin to preach a gospel of repentance, telling people to prepare their hearts, turn from their ways, prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And when he received his calling, he was told, whether by God or by an angel or some other way, that he would know who the Messiah was when he saw the Spirit of the Lord come down and rest on him. Now, in all the other gospels, we just read about this happening. It's kind of, you know, they just tell us that John baptized Jesus and that the, the heavens opened up, that the dove came down, rested on Jesus, and God spoke. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Right? We hear that, and it's God himself who, who declares that Jesus is who he says he is. But in John's gospel, it's John the Baptist who gets to testify as to who Jesus is. Which is interesting when you consider the audience that John is writing to. Remember, it's made up of some of John the Baptist's disciples in Ephesus. It would be pertinent to them that they would hear from the lips of the very rabbi whom they're following, even though he's died, to hear from his lips that it's Jesus who he was ultimately preparing the way for. And he says, when I saw that happen, when I saw the dove came down, that was confirmation to me that this is the one I've been preparing the way for. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again by the Jordan with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. What I love about John is that every time he has an opportunity to kind of make himself bigger, 
he constantly points people back to Jesus. He's talking to two of his disciples, two of his followers. And instead of saying, hey, come on, guys, he points them at Jesus and says, here's the one that I've been telling you about. Even though they may very well walk away from him and begin to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, naturally. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and, they asked, and he asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, and then notice that there's parentheses around what's about to be said. This is called an inclusion, meaning that John, the author, is including some information that's pertinent to his audience that they may not understand. Rabbi, and then he says, which means teacher. So he's defining a Jewish term for a largely non-Jewish audience. And he's going to do that several times throughout here. I won't point them all out, but he continues to throw in information that would be important for a non-Jewish audience to understand. So they said, well, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? You know, I don't know. We're just trying to make small talk here. And Jesus said, come and you'll see. So he invites them to come with him. And so they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him until about four in the afternoon. So Jesus's invitation to come and see wasn't just, hey, come and check out the digs that I got for the day. He said, come and walk with me, talk with me, interact with me, experience me. So that you no longer need to take John's testimony about me. But you can see for yourself who you, re- who you really think I am. And after having spent the day with him, at least one of the disciples, Andrew, is so convinced that this is the one they've been waiting for, that this is the Messiah, that he goes and runs and finds his brother Simon. And he says, we found the Messiah. So this is in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard, that John had, heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And again, he explains what the Messiah means. The Messiah is a Hebrew term that means Christ. In Greek, the word Christ means the same thing as Messiah in Hebrew, and it means the anointed one. So Christ is not actually Jesus' last name. It's a title, meaning God's anointed redeemer. Messiah and Christ are interchangeable depending on which language you're talking about. We found the Messiah. We found the Christ. And then he brought Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John, but you're going to be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic name. It's kind of a nickname. We would, we would translate it rock. But it was more like a nickname, so it might be somebody like today called Rocky. No, you're going to be called Rock, which is interesting because any of us who have read the Gospels and know Peter throughout them, he's anything but a rock. I mean, he is, he is not solid and unwavering. He's constantly wavering. But what I love about Jesus is I, I think he names him Rock, not for who he is, but for who he will become. What he sees as coming for Peter, I, that's conjecture. But he names him Peter, which means the rock. One last thing before I move beyond this. Remember that there were two disciples of John, right? One of them we know is Andrew. And he goes and runs and gets his brother Peter. And they start to follow Jesus. But who is the other disciple? The Bible doesn't say, but history from very early on has suggested that the second disciple is actually John, the author of this gospel. And here's the reason why. Throughout the Gospel of John, we know from the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, that John was actually one of Jesus' very first disciples. 
one of the very first ones to come to him. But in the Gospel of John, John never refers to himself in the first person. If he ever does talk about himself, he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, which, you know, is very humble. But, but also, he never calls himself by his own name. And that's important because here, he never refers to who this other disciple was, but theologians and historians believe that this was actually John. He was one of John the Baptist's disciples. He was able to watch John say the things about Jesus that he heard. And so he's able to then speak with confidence as to what John actually said. Furthermore, he's able to add little details into this like it was was four o'clock when they went and got Simon. Little details that he saw and he could pull from his own experience. Again, Conjecture, it's something I'm pulling from his, history and things like that, but there are, a lot, uh, there are a lot of people who would suggest that this might have been John who was the second disciple. Let's move on now. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So he's in the Jordan region, which is south of the Sea of Galilee, and now he begins to head north up to the Sea of Galilee. God bless you, Michael. Finding Philip, Jesus runs into a guy named Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now that invitation... I find it so fascinating. We often say, hey, let's pray a prayer and begin to follow Jesus. Jesus' invitation was never simply believe, never pray a prayer. He always invited people to follow me, do life with me, walk in relationship with me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael after he'd spent some time with Jesus. He goes running and he finds another of his friends, a guy named Nathanael. And he is so convinced of who Jesus is that he declares, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, we found him, the Messiah. Come on, come and see. And Nathaniel being skeptical because around this time, there were a lot of people who purported themselves to be the Messiah. There had been false messiahs that had cropped up and been killed and nothing happened around that time. So Nathaniel is understandably skeptical. And he says, Nazareth, can any good come from there? You know, it'd be like David Stack going, USC, can any good players come from there? You know, you don't have a whole lot of respect for another rival team or a rival town. I know it's it's painful to me that he would not see the light. But anyway, Nazareth, can any good come from there? And Philip responds with exactly the same words that Jesus had used for John's disciples. Come and see. Don't take my word for it. Come and meet him. Come and spend some time with him, and then you'll be able to say for yourself who Jesus is. Well, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Here's a man of integrity who does what he believes and and is willing to live out his faith. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael said. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And I'm getting whiplash going, dude, that that was easy. You were convinced relatively easily there. And I don't know. Jesus puts his finger on a single moment. And I don't know what went on for Nathanael. I don't know if he had been praying under the fig tree or if he had seen a vision. I don't know, but Nathanael does. He knows why that moment was so pertinent and why Jesus pointing to that was enough to turn him from a skeptic into a full-fledged believer. And and trust me, he is a full-fledged believer because of the terms he calls Jesus here. 
He doesn't just say, man, you are really smart. You must be a prophet. He starts pulling out all the messianic terms. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Those are massive terms. Those aren't just honorifics. Those are massive, theologically weighty terms that he starts putting on Jesus. And I would suspect that Jesus is kind of laughing to himself like, oh my goodness, that's it? That's all it took? Because Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Just hold on, strap in. Because you, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. And then he added, very truly I tell you. Now, I don't want to go on yet. I want to just po- focus on those four words right there. Very truly I tell you. Two things I want to point out. First, the term you there is not singular. He's been talking to Nathaniel, but now the word you is plural, meaning he's speaking to all of the guys who are following him at this point. And the term that we just translated very truly in the original language is amen, amen. We would translate it truly, truly. Why is this important? 25 times throughout John's gospel, he will be, Jesus will begin a statement with amen, amen, or truly, truly. And it's a way that Jesus highlights a statement that he feels like is extremely important, that he wants them to pay attention to. So amen, amen, truly, truly, I tell you that you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Thanks, Jesus. What the heck does that mean? Well, turn with me. This is one place I do want you to turn. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. Jesus points to a very specific moment in Israel's history. Jacob, one of their most treasured ancestors, whose name will later be changed to Israel, who will be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jacob. Jacob has a dream in which he is sleeping and he, he sees heaven open up and a stairway or a ladder between the heavens and the earth and angels going up it and going down it. This is where we get the term Jacob's ladder from. Verse 16 of Genesis chapter 28. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord Yahweh is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. Now think about what Jesus just said. Surely you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is pointing directly to this vision and saying, in the same way that Jacob saw a place where heaven and earth collided, I am the gate of heaven. I am the house of God. I am the place where heaven and earth connect. And when you come near me, you are coming into the very presence of the heavens. So strap in because you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what he's telling these guys. I I just love when you actually start pulling apart Scripture because I had skipped over that statement so many times and never realized what he was saying. But as we want to ask every single week, as I'm going to begin wrapping this up, I want to ask the question, so what? Because there's a lot of really good information in this, but so what? What is it? How does the word that was spoken and experienced some 2,000 years ago impact our lives now in 2014? 
couple of thoughts. There's a lot of things that stand out, but I want to focus on two in particular. The first is John the Baptist, and specifically the way that he treats the acclaim that is coming around. And people are clamoring around him, wanting to know what he's saying, wanting to know who he is, wanting to place the focus on him. And time and time again, John the Baptist is like, don't look at me, look towards him. Don't focus on me. I'm nothing. He's everything. Later on in the book of John, John the Baptist will literally say, I must decrease so that he can increase. I must become less so that he can become greater. John wasn't interested in building his own kingdom or making his own name great. John was not interested in in grabbing onto power and prestige. And I wonder, am I like that? Can I honestly say that I'm not interested in making my own name great, that I am hyper-focused on making his name great? Can I honestly say that I want him to increase, even though I recognize that that forces me to decrease? And I'd love to say yes. I'd love to answer in the affirmative. But if I'm honest, I have to admit that no, I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to make Jesus' name great, but I kind of want to make my own name great as well. And I would suspect I'm probably not the only one. So this morning I'm challenged by John's attitude and posture. Intentionally trying to step out of the limelight and not make it about himself so that Jesus can be on display. So that people can be focused on him. Even going so far as to direct his own disciples towards Jesus knowing that they would leave him. The second thing that really stands out for me is the invitation that Jesus gave to both the disciples of John that came to him, and then later Philip gave to Nathanael. Come and see. It's an invitation not simply to learn more about Jesus, but to meet him. Talk with him. Interact with him and see who he really is. Find out for ourselves if he really is who other people are saying he is. Now that was really easy for the disciples in that day. Because they could go to a flesh and blood Jesus Christ standing right there. They could talk with him, interact with him. But what about us? I mean, Jesus is living. We have God within us. But how can we experience Jesus here and now? How can we interact with him to find out whether he really is who he says he is? Because I suspect there are people in here who may be going, well, I don't know what I believe. I mean, it, I think that he's a great teacher, but the Messiah, God in human flesh, I'm just not really ready to go there. So how can we in the 21st century come and see who Jesus really is? Well, one way that I know of, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and it's the one way that I know of, it can be summed up in a single word, obedience. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, if you're really my disciple, then you'll do what I say. You'll put my teaching into practice. And then when you do that, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Can we throw the quote from Oswald Chambers up on the screen? Oswald Chambers wrote this. The golden rule for spiritual understanding isn't intellect, but obedience If a man wants scientific knowledge, then intellectual curiosity is his guide. But if he wants insight into what Jesus teaches or insight into who Jesus is, he can only get it by obedience. 
If you put my words into practice, if you do what I say, then you're truly my disciples. And then you'll know if what I say is really true. I remember some years back, I, back before I even had kids, because I actually had time to serve. I was, I was sitting out at Blackie's in Newport Beach with a buddy. We were sitting on our boards waiting for a swell to come in. And he began to articulate to me that he was beginning to have doubts about his faith. And he started telling me, I, 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 I think there's a God up there, but I just, I just don't know. I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if Jesus is the right person to entrust my life to. And I'm sitting there just kind of like, oh my gosh, what do I say? He's burying his soul. How do I like crush his doubts so he'll never doubt again? I was younger then. And, and by the way, he wasn't articulating anything that I think any of us probably haven't at some point in our walk felt. I'm just grateful that he was willing to articulate it. And I begin to pray fervently, God, give me wisdom how to respond. I mean, give me a verse that I can like, you know, contradict any doubt he has or give me, you know, details that I can share with him. And I listened and I listened and I listened. And then finally, I felt only one thing that God laid on my heart to say. And it wasn't unrefutable proof. It wasn't verses. It was simply a question. Well, how is your life different now since you've been following Jesus than it was before? And then I shut up. And I let him chew on that for a little bit. And then my buddy began to share about the fruit that he had seen in his life. He began to share about the lifestyle that was self-focused and radically destructive, not only to himself but to others around him, that, that he had walked away from in following Jesus. He talked about the ways that, that his attitude towards women and his attitude towards responsibility had been radically changed. He talked about the fruit of the Spirit that he'd seen beginning to percolate in his life. And he began to convince himself that, in fact, in following Jesus, his life was radically different. Through his obedience, he began to recognize that Jesus was truly who he said he was, and he began to experience freedom. Freedom from the things that the world said were valuable, but it ultimately enslaved him. And so this morning, I suppose that the invitation is the same one given to John's disciples, the same one given to Nathaniel. Come and see. Come and see who Jesus really is. Put him to the test. Submit to his lordship and see how your life will be transformed. Because if we're really his disciples, then we're going to put his teaching into practice and the truth of that will set us free. There's a whole lot of other things, but those are two that really resonated for me. I just want to pray over us and then we're going to go into a time of response. And if during this song, there's something that you just need to have a conversation with God. Maybe you just need to spend some time praying, seated. That's fine. Then don't feel the need to sing just spend some time talking to, with God. If you want to come forward because you want someone to pray with you or you want to go towards the back, I'll be up front. Lee will be in the back. Some of the elders could maybe move towards the front of the back just to be available. We'll be here to pray. Or if you feel led that you want to engage in the song, that's fine too. Um, one of the ways that we respond is through offering. That is simply a way of saying, God, I place my faith in you, not in the stuff that I accumulate. 
And so if giving offering, that's going to, about halfway through the song, our ushers will come forward and they'll, they'll pass that. One way you can respond is if you have a prayer request that you'd like to share with us, write it on that little tear-off section in your outline. There's a space for prayer requests. Please write it down there because we like to pray for those throughout the week. We gather on a couple of different occasions each week to pray over these things. Okay, so those are a couple ways you can respond right now. Go ahead and bow your heads as the, the worship team comes forward. And I simply want to pray over us. Father, I thank you for the ways that you speak through John's testimony written some 2,000 years ago. I thank you for the ways that John the Baptist's testimony and his willingness to step out of the limelight and say, no, focus on Christ challenges us, us today. And I thank you, Jesus, for the invitation that you give us to come and see. To not have to just blindly trust, but actually put you to the test and, and, and put your teaching into practice. And so, Father, would you give us the courage, those of us who have, like my buddy, have questions, have doubts. Would you give us the courage to follow you a few steps? And would you give us the eyes to see what it is you want to do in our lives? Would you use others, bring them along like Philip did to Nathaniel, to spur us on and point us towards you? Because at the end of the day, we don't want to just know more about you. We want to know you. We want to know your living power in our lives that transforms us from the inside out and then begins to spill over into the relationships that we have in our marriages, with our children, with our neighbors, with our co-workers and our friends. God, we want to be living examples for you, but we can't do that if we don't know you. So would you help us to come and see? Would you draw near to us and give us the eyes to recognize what you've truly done in our lives for your name's sake? We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.